most of the time on this channel, we talk directly about the stories of New Century. But sometimes, we open the window less traveled and see where it takes us. Welcome to Century Tales. Obviously, the cats of mm. the New World have a different opinion on <laughs> gender roles and all the like. Mm. But given that Dark Panther and the Tiger of Light do appear to be a male-female pairing, does it seem like, you know, in the, in terms of one being the dark and one being the light, also being that they are married, that they are not in opposition to each other, but have qualities about them that would be like, Dark Panther is this way, Tiger of Light is this way, and therefore it's part of everybody has these two aspects of them, much like, you know, masculine, feminine, anima, animus, that sort of thing. Do you think that that is an implied part of the significance of the pairing as depicted in the books? Hmm. Possibly. But if you want to take it back to the yin and yang, mm. the yin and yang do have an aspect of the other within them. Mm. That's right. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, that's that little that they they are an enormous sort of like teardrop shape, but then have a dot in the center of the other color. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you were to relate it back to what I was saying about the being the moon and you're just seeing a different aspect of the moon. Mm. Um, I mean, I think we all have masculine and feminine within us. And I think even within the Durga tribe, they didn't specify certain roles. I mean, Hral was a hunter mm-hmm. and going out and, and assuming that role and was not a very maternal Obviously, she had her child, and that was a, mm-hmm. a big aspect of it, but was did not have any additional children. Mm-hmm. It didn't stay home and putter around the fire and do the domestic things. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Relatable. Um, and <laughs> I am pro. Um, like, hmm, if you need me, I'll be out doing, doing work, son. Mm-hmm. So I think that, well, and actually, there were male and female shaman. You're absolutely right. The right, silent the, one. The silent one was was female, so there isn't an inherent masculine or feminine to those roles or anything like that. There was male and female leaders of the tribe as well. Yeah. Uh, they also happened to be brother and sister. And on top of that, as I remember in the story, Hrau's father, Junta, mm-hmm. was often depicted as being kind of pretty much like a homebody mm-hmm. he was always fixing things or like mm-hmm. making sure that Crow had what she needed when she was working herself to death and so therefore appeared to occupy more of what we might associate as being a homemaker role although obviously homemaker has a very different connotation in that kind of society than it would be in 
what we would consider a modern society of stay home and 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 cook the food and clean the house and do the laundry yeah. and everything like that. He just made a home, like yeah. built it. <laughs> Literally made a home. Yeah, exactly. Look, home. <laughs> I fixed your door. I made this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of those things where again, the natural order is you do what you are best suited for. Mm. You can't force someone into a role I mean, you can, but not well, um, into a role that they are not suited for, like temperament wise, physically wise, if you're nearsighted, maybe hunting's not for you. Um, (laughs) I would be a lousy hunter. Mm -hmm. I'm blind. Um, So with the dark panther and tiger of light, I think it's a matter of more of a balance than a opposition i think it is more of a not opposing forces but complementing forces mm-hmm. as any good relationship should be it's absolutely and <laughs> just thinking about it on top of Wait. that we <laughs> yes dear i saw what you I, I did in fact see what you were doing there um there was an episode of school of movies that i re-listened to recently where Sharon talked about her personal beliefs when it comes to certain aspects of Jungian psychology. Obviously, its use is more the archetypal and the mythological, as we have far more complex understandings of the psyche these days. That said, we are talking about mythology. And as a part of the old methodology, Jung asserted that men had a feminine side to their unconscious, the anima, or women had a male aspect, the animus. In Sharon's opinion, she believed that everyone has both, masculine and feminine, animus and anima, inside all of us. I like the duality of this idea, because it explains why some people might have qualities about them that are identified as more feminine or masculine in spite of their assigned gender. I do still struggle with the idea that any personality traits are inherently masculine or feminine, but if some of them are, then it should be allowable that everyone has some balance of that in them, whether male, female, trans, or some flavor of non-binary. It's an inclusive explanation, rather than exclusive, and also fits rather nicely with the yin and yang mythology as well. Well, okay, so this is getting a little bit... All of a sudden, I feel like I'm I'm walking into dangerous territory here because we, in fact, already know that the concept of gender not being a binary is something that the aboriginal tigers of Rama would actually respect. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one of the later characters in... Panther Soul specifically identifies as being non-binary or a combination of male and female. Mm-hmm. But regardless of the fact that gender can be a spectrum, and I, I definitely believe that, it still means that male and female exist on that spectrum. And even just biologically, both kinds of equipment is needed in order to create more young for the tribe so to speak. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a ham-fisted job of explaining No, this. no. <laughs> I just like to use that equipment. 
very think of a way to explain it that is respectful of the the non-binariness of gender that we're trying to (laughs) in order to make in order to make more cats you need a person with a penis and you need a person with a vagina how about that (laughs) how about that Tabe Slanti, go. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there are uh, certain scientific truths. Maureen and I decided to move on from there, as we felt we'd mind out that topic. Or perhaps rather that we weren't really prepared to discuss gender as it relates to mythologies. Having said that, I will share that at some point many months ago, there was a discussion on the School of Movies Discord about what genders all of the gods of the seven were. Only some of them were canonically depicted as having he or she pronouns, and with the revelation of a non-binary cat character in Panther Soul, we were trying to figure out who might be a likely candidate. Dark Panther and Tiger of Light were already asserted as husband and wife, father of passing is obvious, and both Fire Lion and the Leopard of Water were established as male and female, respectively. That leaves Air Cheetah, Earth Jaguar, and our mystery seventh god as potentially Envy. Maybe somewhere down the road, there can be future conversations about this. Or Alex will take what we've said and decide to establish one of them for certain. So we've talked about the big names so far, we've covered all of them, and yet there appears to be a seventh deity that has gone unnamed up till this Mm. point. There seems to be, at least, a plot reason why that deity has gone unnamed at this point. It may be because they are a darker aspect that might be considered evil, or there is a reason to respect them, but they don't feel comfortable naming it. Like, maybe this is knowledge that only the shamans of various tribes know for whatever reason. But I was thinking to myself, what is the significance behind, what would what would the potential reasons be why a deity would be included in a pantheon and yet not be openly spoken of? They're initially talking about Durga tribe's creation myth. They do refer to an older people specifically in regards to how they did not respect the earth, that they did not fear the dark, nor they loved the light, and that they sent the world out of balance, and that's why the cat gods basically scrubbed them from the earth, or alternately, they scrubbed themselves from the earth as well. So the idea that the seventh god might be somehow representative of that or some other dark force feels... Like, that's going in the wrong direction because the seven would seem to be gods that are specifically part of the natural order, that are part of the balance. But what would the reason why they didn't talk about it be? Would it be because they are a a deity that is only meant for the shamans to know for some reason and are not part of the prayers of your normal workaday cats and stuff like that or alternately is it something like um some of the mystery cults of greece or other cultures in which the stories 
Well, I mean, at this point, all stories are verbal. There are no written myths or anything like that. We haven't gotten up to the point where, you know, Greeks would like make plays and store and written stories about the gods and everything like that. Everything is told via oral tradition, and it's all the responsibility of the shaman of the group. But I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about why there is a seventh that is not discussed as a part of the storytelling of the tribe. So I think there's a couple of reasons. One literary and sort of simple. Mm-hmm. Alex may not have come up with a person or deity yet, or be leaving that space open. <laughs> Insert God here. This has actually been confirmed by Alex in the Through the Windor feed, as well as a potential identity of the seventh, but we're continuing on because the next answer is more interesting than the truth. The other thing is, I think, sort of a broader topic. The number seven is very mystical. Mystical? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mystical. And is used a lot in a lot of... Traditions? Thank you. So I think that having a seventh deity is just sort of a natural fit. Mm-hmm. To have that, don't have too many deities because woof, but having a seventh deity to fill this spot later mm-hmm. as needed. And my guess is, and I'm not privy to knowledge, or if mm-hmm. I am, I've completely forgotten it. Since we know Mr. Shaw has this grand plan, mm-hmm. it's probably somewhere on a big cork board with red string. Connecting <laughs> it somewhere and there's probably something and it might be tom hiddleston as loki i don't know but it's probably it's probably there somewhere um and it's not for us to know it is ineffable at this point i think it was left open on purpose i think it was Mm -hmm. a number choice because of the number seven Mm -hmm. but i also think he wanted to give himself a little bit of leeway Mm. so that's an in-story reason as to why the name goes unsaid but do you think that there is a reason in terms of like actual depictions in extant human cultures or another reason why there might be gods that are talked about and gods that are not talked about yeah i think your your idea of the shamanistic link is spot on Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of cultures that do that especially if the whether it's a religious leader or a political leader that sets themselves up as divinely Mm. installed, they'll keep some of the information away from the normal people Mm -hmm. so that they can retain their grip on power. Mm. And it may not be for nefarious reasons, but it may be more along the lines of, you know, I have this particular information and this particular insight that is specifically to me, which is why I'm in this role. That's why I'm the shaman, or that's why I'm the mm. king, or the sultan, or the pharaoh, or the... Because I have this connection. It's only now, listening to Maureen, that I remember that Tiger's Eye already has an example of that. The stories about human with guns coming through portals that Haka's teacher told him and only him about. Stories that were not shared with the tribe at large, but which informed Haka's actions when he wanted to kill Miguel. Not a god, per se, but definitely myths 
that were determined to only be in the hands of the shaman. I always joke that my mom has a bat phone to Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's like the red phone that you pick up. Bring! It's like a the man behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. That is a very real and concise reason mm-hmm. that a lot of cultures would do that. Intriguingly, just as a, I mean, you you did it as a joke, but one of the things that's been on my mind, and I, I mentioned this to you in an earlier conversation that specifically makes me wonder about this seventh unnamed god is the fact that the seven does not appear to have a trickster deity <laughs> it doesn't have a loki it doesn't have coyote or anansi or iktomi uh who is another trickster spider god but is lakota as opposed to anansi who is from uh, african aboriginal mm-hmm. Uh, cultures mm-hmm. and everything like that mm-hmm. and i thought you know could the unnamed deity be a form of trickster which would be potentially on un- i mean it would depend on what form of trickster it would be obviously there are benign depictions of tricksters and there are darker depictions of tricksters yeah. and it's even a little bit more complicated than that because it's like because it's an aspect that pops into <clears throat> modern versions of him, uh, Loki is often depicted as being a malevolent god of evil or of lies or of the the darker aspect of being a trickster and everything like that in terms of doing things that uh, put mortals and gods into a spot. But there is also, to a certain extent, the implication that this interpretation might have been a result of hmm, Christian scholars associating Loki with the devil, you know, because they're it, it, obviously if there's a, a, a deity that is representative of Jesus or Yahweh or whoever, then they need to have an opposite because that's the way that things work. And so therefore, oh, Loki keeps on showing up as being awful. Also, he's uh, relevant to Ragnarok. Therefore, he must be the depiction of the devil. But, you know, whether or not, you know, the Nordic peoples actually considered him that way is sort of potentially a little bit lost to time because it's all framed through the the stuff that was written down after the fact by people that were not them. And I've definitely heard a few things, particularly in terms of some of the some of the YouTube videos that people like OSP has done, that the Norse may have depicted Loki as less being a an evil god, but more of being like, this is somehow his responsibility, that it's a part of this cycle that the gods sort of accept exist, that they're eventually going to kill each other in order to make way for a new world. If you want to learn more about how the stories, names, and depictions of certain gods changed over time, OSP is one of the best sources you can go to, and Red does her homework. I've learned a lot that I didn't know even with my interest in learning about the evolution and migration of mythologies. Having said that, Red has also got on the record that she very well may not ever do any videos on Native American myths and gods. Like myself, she's worried about the whole cultural appropriation dangers. But on top of that, in a lot of cases, 
the First Nations don't like to talk about their own myths. They've learned from how white people love using and changing things for their own needs, and they want to keep their own stories sacred and untouched by white hands. After all, it doesn't matter if some historians have good intentions. People that are not of the culture the stories come from are going to have a different lived experience, and will try to understand things based through their own personal filters. Heisenberg's principle applies in a way here. Observing a thing changes it. And we should leave well enough alone. Let the First Nations be responsible for their own stories. And that's another bunch of information that I've just thrown at you. So let me bring it back to my original question. Is it possible that this mystery deity could be a trickster? And are tricksters necessarily needed in your average pantheon? Are you saying Christianity fucked something up? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Pikachu face reaction. (laughs) I mean, I I would say all things are possible with Alex. No. uh, (laughs) (laughs) You can leave that in or edit it out. I do not care. Um, I don't know that a trickster god is necessary for a pantheon. It depends on the culture. Mm -hmm. It depends on the people. Because, let's be real, every religion is made up. Yeah, no. It's... Every pantheon is made up. It's it's just throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the, one of the things I've always loved about mythology and developing gods that are important to a culture is mm-hmm. that it's 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 the first very basic form of storytelling that mm-hmm. allows people to try to make sense of the world mm-hmm. because if they can explain it in some form then that's a way to be less afraid of it, to feel like there is some form of order and is also a way of people sharing the values that they find important and want to make sure are disseminated through the tribe, through the people, in order to ensure the likelihood that they will continue to survive, so to speak. One of the turns of phrase that I love is the idea that storytellers are just liars they're talking about something that doesn't actually exist or cannot be demonstrated to exist they are delivering a fiction so the idea that a lot of pantheons have a trickster god in there is possibly often because the trickster god is depicted as being like a storyteller themselves Anansi, in particular, loves to tell stories that involve him, even though they're stories in which he doesn't necessarily come off so good. I could see Loki telling a lot of stories about him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. The depiction of Loki, certain depictions In the MCU. Yeah, in the MCU are just to be very narcissistic, but he would definitely probably lie about those stories. He has lied about those stories. I was going to say. That was a big part of what happened at a certain point in Taika Waititi's Ragnarok and everything. So, yeah. Oh, Tom Hiddleston. (laughs) I love that he originally auditioned for Thor. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. He originally auditioned for the role of Thor. (laughs) Somebody was like, hmm, 
Why do you think? Uh, why do you think that Chris Hemsworth got it instead of you? Hmm? Uh, hmm? I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> look, like, Tom Hiddleston yeah. cannot be blamed for the fact that he's a beanpole, but you I know, he's <laughs> my brother from another mother. <laughs> <laughs> he's got some dance moves, though. Anyway, <sighs> okay, what was I saying? I don't know. I got distracted by. Tom <laughs> yeah, so we just sort of really gotten off into a joking mindset here. You, you were talking originally about how tricksters aren't necessarily a needful component of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think there's always an aspect of, or it can be incorporated into another deity. I think that there are some deities that can shoulder that role in a, in addition to their primary roles. I mean, you there's a lot of pantheons where you see Didi A covers like eight aspects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it necessary? No. Is it probably going to be in a pantheon in some aspect? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are they going to call it a trickster? Maybe. Maybe mm-hmm. not. God of deception. Mm-hmm. God of illusion. Or goddess of. Let's not be. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that actually Deity of <laughs> went into at some point is like, which of the seven have been depicted specifically as one gender or another, and which of them hasn't? Because you're trying to figure out, okay, can any of the ones named so far possibly be a different gender than expected because their gender wasn't gone into, or could they be non-binary because we wanted to be inclusive? So, yeah, for all we know, the Tiger of Light could somehow have a trickster aspect associated with her. We don't know. We don't judge. Uh. <laughs> Tiger's going to come for you. Uh-huh. You know, and that could be a part of it, because if it's, uh, especially with the Dark Panther and Tiger of Light, with being the dual aspect and the yin and yang, mm-hmm. maybe they are one and the same. Mm-hmm. Probably not, but there could be some aspect of that at play. So, so... When back when we first started this discussion, and another thing that I've been thinking about a lot, um, based on trying to figure out, okay, what are the domains of the various gods that have already been established? Do you think that within all of the conversation that we've been having so far about what roles the gods primarily have because they are associated with dark or light or one of the elements? Do you think that there are roles that should be a part of a tribal culture that don't appear to be covered so far? If there doesn't if there doesn't need to be a trickster god, are there important aspects to tribal life that air cheetah, earth jaguar, fire lion, and all the rest don't seem to cover right now? Just going to take an extended moment here to clarify something. I've used the word tribal a number of times in the original recording, and that's a regrettable faux pas on my part. The word tribe is already problematic in terms of it being used as a catch-all for diverse human societies that deserve more descriptive context. There can also be a negative connotation to it, but I keep using the word because it's what the Durger were referred to in Tiger's Eye. In this context, though, I'm using it even more improperly, as a better word for what I was going for escaped me at time of recording. There are many ancient civilizations with complex mythologies 
and a smorgasbord of gods to go with it. In this case, when I used the word tribe, I was trying to suggest something close to the various indigenous peoples of the Americas and Africa that were displaced and colonized by more powerful imperial forces. But to be honest, even doing that is far too simplistic and arrogant. After all, the context is going to be different based on each individual culture. You can't even divide it between African indigenous peoples and American indigenous peoples. These are entire continents. What is important to a society depends a lot on the land they live off of, and these continents have diverse biomes. The Lakota that we see in Dances with Wolves may be nomadic hunters, but the Wichita lived in settled villages and learned how to farm maize and other crops. Africa alone has nine distinct biomes, and not just the desert and jungle we typically expect from certain media depictions. Some First Nations are relatively small, but the Inca had a wide-spanning civilization that lasted centuries, had roads and writing, and built Machu Picchu. And even if an individual ethnic group does not spread wide, they can still form alliances of nations like the Iroquois Confederacy, through which cultures and mythologies can be spread, as much as the pantheons of Greek and Egypt influenced each other. In retrospect, I realize that part of the entire premise for this conversation is more than a little problematic, at least in terms of trying to boil down mythology to something basic that you can use for any creative work. This is part of the reason why we spend as much time discussing the Durga as we do. That, after all, is the group that we can speak most authoritatively on, based on experience with that world. And even there, one should take into account that a culture of sentient great cats is also going to be different from one of humans, even as they are also defined off the land that they live off of. Having said all that, I end by saying that I trust my audience to understand that we are merely asking and trying to answer questions, not speaking from authority. I hope that the experience is at least entertaining and thought-provoking, even if we stumble along the way. So now you're kind of this is dancing into the territory of <laughs> separation of church and state. Mm. Um, the deities are more on, along the lines of the nature of things, mm. the the elements, the you know, light, dark, fire, air, or life, death. Yeah. If you're looking at the tribal culture as far as how they structure their hierarchy or their political or their family units or their roles within it, like we were talking about with them, you know, male and female mm -hmm. hunters versus shaman versus what have you. Is it something that a deity needs to cover? Is it something that is within the realm of politics? Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and this is coming from somebody that's more of an atheist. But I don't think necessarily that so – you said something earlier about it's a way for them to understand the world around them mm -hmm. and make light of these larger things that are scary, like mm -hmm. fire and water, these natural forces, these things that are external and could be hard to explain without mm – -hmm. 
religion or science or mythology. If you're looking at the culture itself, that is something that is more small. It's mm. more, it's easier to understand and easier to sort of manage. And so it isn't necessary for deities to be assigned to more of that insular cultural thing, mm. in my opinion, in my thoughts. Obviously, there's a lot of cultures, and I did some research, and my brain just kind of exploded with, like, all of the gods and goddesses in this particular culture and all the gods and goddesses in this culture, and you're just like, wall of text. And, you know, and, and some cultures have so many deities. It's like, okay, really? Do you really need a god of, like, your left elbow? Like, you <laughs> don't. It's mm -hmm. too much. You're going too far. In aspect of keeping things simplified and sort of again within the natural order of things don't overcomplicate things and mm -hmm. i think having the seven that they have again mythical magical number mm -hmm. and there may be aspects to them the ones that we know that we aren't aware of like maybe um, leopard of water is also a trickster or handles politics, or handles, or you know... it handles healing, you know, if we right, take it back exactly. to the last yeah, Avatar, yeah, the... Last Airbender. God, it's the second time <laughs> I've done that, yes. The last Airbender, where uh -huh. the waterbenders are specifically tend to be the ones the that healing. know how to heal with their magic and everything like that, but just... Fires, industry, and yeah... Well, so I, I was actually going through a couple of pantheons specifically associated with, like, Lakota and stuff like that, because that's one I have some familiarity with. Uh, one of the gods is the personification of time. Oh! But, mm -hmm. but it also just occurred to me, it may well be that they don't necessarily need a god of time, because we've already kind of established that Durga tribe in particular, and honestly, cats that are not of Durga tribe, but are like uh, Kolanash in particular in um, Panthersol, uses the same term that Hrau uses over and over again in terms of it is today, it is tomorrow, it is yesterday. They have a very, not like a linear flow of time, but like they divide all of everything that came before and everything that is now and everything that is to come into three distinct areas. And so therefore they kind of perceive time differently than you or I do because of the nature of history and also just modern thinking and everything like that. Past, present, future. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, fertility, childbirth, would that be considered fire lion's domain or is it mm. more likely to be considered the tiger of light's domain because clearly female deity wife of dark panther does that naturally then associate with her because she might be considered a mother figure whereas fire lion already a masculine aspect is considered more to be like everything else that lives rather than cat mm. specific and, you know, we don't necessarily know, but it feels like that at least is something that should be covered under a basic tribal pantheon, because bringing young into the world would definitely be significant to a relatively 
small familial unit such as a tribe that doesn't have a whole lot of members to their name and therefore every child every addition to the tribe is precious there are a lot of pre-historical depictions even of artwork of various kinds suggesting the importance that female fertility deities held in a time before civilizations were built and uh, male deities started to hold more sway over the rise and fall of civilizations and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, Well, either way, those fertility goddesses can miss me with that noise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, you know, obviously this is, this is all speaking within the realms of hypothetical. I know. I mean, obviously, I think the person that would know that best would be Alex. Hey, Alex. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of those pantheons is for fertility? <laughs> Rob needs to know. She doesn't, actually. Not Rob. Scratch that. It's actually ironic that you were bringing that up earlier, because while the tribe itself in Tiger's Eye doesn't seem to believe that there are roles that should be specifically associated with gender or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It is one of the more significant parts of Tiger's Eye that Haka, the shaman at least, believes that there are roles that should be associated with certain gender and that it feels unnatural to him for Harau not to want more children or that, you know, that he (laughs) associates his other wives uh, as having certain qualities which he thinks that wives should have, and yet takes Rao as the, his third wife, specifically because she has traits about her that are unlike the other two uh, women in his life. So, yeah. And does- also, he was wrong. <laughs> We see yeah. how well that turned out for him, okay? Yeah, exactly. Moving on. <laughs> At the very least, he figured it out. So, yeah. With the help of a wise old woman. Yes, it's, it's very true. <laughs> and also her out kicking his ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she wakes up and she chooses violence. Mm-hmm. <sighs> That's my girl. I also thought about and didn't necessarily have an answer for. I wondered at some point the way capitals were used in Tiger's Eye about when Hrau talks about hunting specific animals. She will sometimes mm-hmm. use the capital letter as if to suggest the animals themselves are embodying some sort of totemic representation of all of that kind of animal. Mm-hmm. Um, Quagga specifically comes up as being one of those animals that is capitalized at one point. And that could already be an indication of the fact that, okay, yes, we have seven cat gods, but maybe there are more divine spirits out there. And so therefore there is a a larger pantheon. It's just that the animal spirits occupy a different domain than the seven gods that are uh, originally mentioned in the creation myth. Well, and I think all life on some level is sacred. Mm-hmm. They need to eat it to survive. There is something to be said for not wanting to kill without reason. Mm-hmm. Whether self-defense or because of survival. It's all, yeah. I mean, it's survival. 
Yeah. Um, even when they want to kill Miguel, it's it's mm-hmm. for survival. They think he's a threat. Turns out they were wrong. But <laughs> they misinterpreted the threat anyway. Yes. Well, yeah. I was just going to say that is one of the things we get into at a certain point is that expectations are played around with in Tiger's Eye mm. because we know from experience that if humanity was in a superior position mm. and they discovered the Windors while in that position, there could very well have been a conflict of resources or fear between yeah. the cats and humans, and yet what the the way the story turns it on its head is like no the danger came from other cats the entire time humans ruin everything yeah (laughs) news 11 yeah but in the early stages of the story there there is definitely that fear and Mm. the implication that you know returning miguel to his people might lead to the danger of that they will be the threat that haka feared they would be all along and it just it just so happens to not be that way. Also, it's at the top of a waterfall, so it's hard to lead an army through that. <laughs> Everybody goes, ah! <laughs> well, yeah. just over and over and over again. Watch that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> <sighs> well, that covers just about everything that I was curious about talking about. The only thing that was left over and I don't necessarily know if you have an answer to this, but I did present the question to you ahead of time, and I was curious if you came up with anything. The only other established myth that is mentioned in Tiger's Eye is like half of a story specifically in regards to the leopard of water, which is how we know the gender representation of at least one of the other gods in the pantheon that she had her heart broken by someone or something it never really uh, gets into that and she travels far away from all that is known in her grief the other gods basically come to her being the leopard of water she is a force of winter and snow and everything like that and is causing some disruption in this case fireline is the one that helps to heal her either from an elemental counter of warmth to cold or alternatively because fireline's demeanor is such that he is a natural force of emotional healing this may fit a little into why miguel referred to him as lion jesus it could also be both of course or other reasons i haven't thought of but one way or another, balance is returned to the world, and that signals the end of the parable. Because the story is unfinished, what the actual meaning of the story was meant to symbolize is unknown. And mm-hmm. I was curious if you know that this might be a reflection of an, of an extant human myth and what that might have been, what what that story was supposed to tell the cats about themselves or whatever. I don't know offhand. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I couldn't remember and couldn't find it, but I did think about it. And I did think about a lot of myths where a deity suffers heartache and it tends to be usually with a mortal or demigod 
um, or some sort of thing. And for in this particular case, I thought maybe it was the first man. Mm-hmm. Cat, or in this case, yeah. Yeah, yeah, being that was created. Or one of the ones from the prior... The prior civilization, yeah, exactly. Who maybe was a leader um, and didn't respect the natural order and therefore broke her heart Mm -hmm. because of the way that he or she hmm, behaved. That could have been part of it and maybe potentially caused some sort of cataclysmic condition Mm, yeah so it could see i could see it being like a like an apocalyptic wipeout sort of like Mm -hmm. noah and the flood and the thing Mm -hmm. and the blood sort of like a flood myth just going back briefly here trying to recall back some elements from the story it's complicated because the story was basically just meant to be like a way of explaining Haka's intrigue at the stories that the shaman told and how he became a shaman himself. So oh, as okay. as far as as far as the story is concerned, it's unfinished because it's meant to hearken at Haka's curiosity and needing to needing to be the person that knows the secrets that the shaman knows and everything like that. Uh, going, back, going back to it um the story actually begins searching for her lover the leopard of water headed north never stopping and crying bitterly cold tears as she went so today if you were to mm. travel in her paw steps you would find the frozen mountains that rise up the further you go until you can reach the basin where she came to rest for a time and cried out a lake of purest ice. From the way that's framed, that almost seems like this is the explanation why the further north you go, there's, you know, snow in the mountains and, like, potentially an Arctic circle and everything like that. It's like Frozen 2. Really? Okay. This came out before Frozen 2, so I don't think that that was... I know, I know. (laughs) But there's a whole thing where the the kid, the... Oh, and then the, she goes to the cave and it's the frozen lake, but it's the place where the memories are. And then she goes and she sings to her mother and it's a whole thing. Yeah. Spoilers. And then <laughs> and then when it gets to the part where Firelion took, takes pity on her and gets the other gods to try and bring happiness back to her life, the thing that results is... Apparently, is as the leopard of water looked up, she saw dazzling lights dance across the sky so this is just lights uh, yeah exactly yeah so it may well be that this is just a story in order to explain certain natural aspects of the world that the uh, aboriginal tribes might be familiar with you haven't seen frozen 2 have you i haven't seen frozen 2 that is one thing that we'll need to cover together because i know i know that you have opinions about that movie (laughs) And I know that other Feelings. people things about that movie too. So I want to be able to see the things so we can have the conversations about it. Oh, so strong feelings. Okay, sorry. Okay, bye. <laughs> I'm thinking in all capital letters anyway. <laughs> it's okay. For the record, I have since seen Frozen 2, which members of the Discord are already aware of. We've had the conversation, 
and I don't think it's particularly interesting to get into, other than I had a different reaction to the movie than she did, and that's just fine. I considered in hindsight if this myth was meant to be a part of an explanation as to the changing of the seasons, but given that the Durga live in a jungle, the seasons they are more familiar with would be the wet season and dry season. Still, their origin myth does speak of the leopard of water bringing long snows, which means that they should be aware of the usual four seasons, as well as the snow that comes with the winter, even if they don't have snow there. This could either mean that the Durga did not always live in the jungle, or alternately, that this is an example of a shared mythology with other indigenous cats. We do know there are tigers that are not of the Durga that they mention, also other groups of non-tigers, some of which they are hostile to and some they are not. This would suggest that there has been peaceful contact with other great cats, enough to share mythologies. And it's also intriguing that even though the tigers are more likely to have peaceful contact with other tigers, they still consider Fire Lion to be the most prominent, rather than, say, elevating the Tiger of Light instead. This was a conversation Toby and I got into a long while back, but because the Seven have not been gotten back into as of Panthrosol, these are questions whose answers we can only guess at, for now. This has been great, honestly. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we went around the mulberry bush in terms of having a lot of different thoughts about everything and various kinds of conclusions that don't necessarily add up to some larger conclusion. But I definitely hope that it was fun and interesting for all of the audience members to hear us ramble on and <laughs> ponder aloud and just we do go be, on yeah be, be ridiculous dorky geeks and everything like that i think it's fun to pick apart a certain aspect of the story not necessarily you know in chronological order but thematically and um you know to to kind of chew on certain pieces of it um, a little bit more enthusiastically. Gnawing on a bone. <laughs> a tiger chewing on a quagga. <laughs> I mean, I love talking about this kind of stuff in a broader picture. And, you know, I, obviously we, you know, it's been a really long time since I embodied Rao in Tiger's Eye. And um, so I was like, casting myself back trying to like remember some of this and I was like oh no but being that it's part of something that you and I talk about something that I've studied um, as far as cultural and mythology and religion and the broader picture and that sort of thing it was fun to sort of delve in and kind of pick it apart mm -hmm. and I hope a loving and respectful way <laughs> and not like a no 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 we're 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 working within the knowledge given and we're mm -hmm. making suppositions and suggestions and you know it's just it's just an exploration of what actually exists to see what new content and theories and interesting conversations will result so i'm <laughs> maureen is gesturing at the camera again in, in, in her way I mean, we just heard the camera, too. Right. I know that Toby's spoken about that in the past. Yeah. But I think that we've come to a natural stopping place. Mm -hmm. But it's been a great conversation. And I'm hoping that this... It feels... 
it feels more successful and more coherent than when than the last time we tried to do this. So I'm yes. hoping that this will be fodder for uh, future century tales. All of you listeners, thank you very much for joining me and Maureen. And we'll see you on another trip through the wind door. Thank you. And so ends our first try at a new format for this show. Throughout the next couple of months will be the new Behind the White Scarves, where your pals Greg and Toby are interviewing the cast of Stone String Maidens, starting with part one of Sharon, Theo, and Loretta next week. I don't know how long all of that will take to play out, as it depends on how many episodes I can edit three different interviews into, but it's likely that Toby and I will take a break after that, before tackling the final season of Phase 1, Steamheart. To close this out for today, we're not doing a song. Instead, because this week was the final episode of Stone Spring Maidens, we decided to give a taste of the blooper reel from the recording of the audio drama. There's almost 20 minutes worth of content, so we'll be releasing it in small snippets throughout the next few weeks, interspersed with outtakes from our own interviews. It's going to be a rollicking good time. We've already done two of them, and we can't wait for y'all to hear them. For those of you that celebrated Thanksgiving this week, we hope yours was a good one. Much love from myself, Toby, and Maureen during the holiday season. So let's end with some good cheer. It's sideways, not up. A brother world, not one from wild away out. All wild away, all the way. Walla walla Washington. <coughs> Eleanor died last year. He was heartbroken. But if he's not with anyone else right now, that is. I don't like Cal. Hmm. Good job. I believe that's the intended effect. I've had a corker of a morning embroiled in our daily dealings with these interdimensional With these interdimensional beings. Of course you are. And it's up to me to open your eyes to how we can make things so much better. You've got you're doing Arlington. This is like my my find a little giggle gas increases, increases my, my pleasure, pleasure enormously. enormously. Mmm, okay. these cinnamon cheeks I could just Bite them. That was the most muppety you've done <laughs> since Tiger's <laughs> Fabo. I love that slang. It sounds very beatnik. <laughs> Mistress went. Renwick. Mistress went. Renwick. Mistress. <laughs> All right. Mistress Renwick. Renwick. Why can't I just call her Smith? <laughs> Alright. Just do the rest of it and we'll come back from Mistress Renwick, please. I'm on hiatus to focus on the business of making... Focus on the business of getting my bloody lines right. That's a more recent development, yes. Sorry. That's a more recent development. I really hope the mic isn't picking up my stomach. I don't know why it's making a noise right now. The reporter was mandatory for the program. Mm. Don't know how Scrooge McDuck got in here, but... I mean, 
It's really quite impressive that you've brought your... Really? Really, Georgie? Really? Your hair is becoming... becoming. Wow. The family from Des Moines, Iowa. Des Moines? Des Moines? Did they say Des Moines? That sounds like something Americans would do. 